Welcome to the Lover's Hole. You are, as always, with Mike and... With Ian. And we're rereading the Patrick O'Brien novels about Captain Jack Aubrey and his particular friend, Dr. Stephen Matron. Ian, we're in the middle of the Ionian mission... Catch us up to date here. Where have we been and where are we headed? Well, Mike, last week, Jack, who, as we know, is in command of the Worcester, set off on a mission that he had been given in rather oblique terms by Admiral Hart, who we know is no friend to Jack. Stephen Maturin, meanwhile, was away on his own intelligence mission. He had missed out on Jack's exploration of the great Johann Sebastian Bach Chacon for violin. He'd missed out on this very unsatisfactory anticlimactic mission in Medina, where the French had refused to accept Jack's provocation to breach the port's neutrality by opening fire. And we finished the episode last time, Mike, with Jack at a really low ebb, dissatisfied with the situation, dissatisfied with himself. So this week, Mike, we're going to discover a few things. We're going to discover what was going on in the Medina action and whatever happened afterwards at Barca. We're going to have some kind of a showdown, I think, coming with Admiral Hart. Jack is going to get reacquainted with an old friend. How well acquainted, we will discover. Stephen makes an unwelcome entrance, plus there's going to be some espionage ashore, Mike, resulting in a surprising encounter in a moonlit French Marsh. Ooh, now that sounds intriguing. I'm looking forward to that. I I love how we open chapter seven. So you you mentioned again that we had the Medina action last week and all these things that happened presumably with Barca, but in classic O'Brien style, we never heard about. That's right. And now we're opening chapter seven, hearing about them in hindsight, in recollection, right? And it's a, it's a different kind of scene here, Jack is now sitting in Admiral Thornton's office and he's telling the story of his journey. And he's right at the point where uh, Medina is over and he's setting his course for Barca, having sent Babington and the Dryad back to tell the Admiral about the French presence in Medina. And O'Brien notes that the Admiral looks at him with a cold objectivity and asks him to describe what happened at Barca. That's right. And Jack reports that the situation at Barca was, to use his words, not altogether satisfactory either. When they arrived, Esmin Pasha, the local ruler, was fighting his son, Moulay, who in turn was attacking him. So Esmin asked for guns and presents from Britain. Uh, Jack felt that he needed the Admiral's consent to supply the guns, but after consultation with Mr. Consul Hamilton, he had sent his carpenter, his gunner, and a dozen hands ashore to remount Esmin's own guns so they could be fired and could help rebuild the defences locally. But... But a new squadron had come in from Constantinople with a new pasha and an order for the recall of this guy, Esmin, who in due course ran off in the night, taking the guns and the presents to join his son and fight this new pasha. So the newly installed ruler of Barca then turned around and said, well, it's customary to welcome me with music and fireworks and gifts. And Jack said with a nervous artificial smile, the music and the fireworks I could manage. Hmm. So clearly the gifts were, were were gone and that was it. So neither the Admiral nor his clerk could return the smile to Jack. And the other Admiral present, Admiral Hart, gave this disapproving sniff. 
Yeah, and Mike, it's a, it's a strange sight, isn't it? This this encounter with Thornton and Hart and Aubrey all together now. Right, right. Here they are. You know, from you know Jack, as as we recall, you know, having had some of his own doubts earlier. Now he's sitting here. Seems to be squirming in front of the admiral. Um, you know, a little bit worried, and and I I think probably just not exactly sure about what's going on here. O'Brien writes. It was a curious sight, the massive Jack Aubrey, a powerful fellow in the prime of life, long accustomed to authority, sitting there with an anxious, deferential expression, poised on the edge of his chair before a small, sick, bloated old man he could have crushed with one hand. The service had enormous faults. Its dockyards were corrupt and often incompetent. The recruitment of the lower deck was a national disgrace, and that of the officers an utterly haphazard affair, while their promotion and employment often depended on influence and favoritism. Yet still, the Navy managed to throw up admirals who could make men like Jack Aubrey tremble. And this this Admiral Thornton, who, who, as we remember, is a sort of recharacterization of a real admiral, Admiral Collingwood, who had been Nelson's second in command for most of his career. This admiral asks if Jack has seen Babington, which is kind of a strange question. And Jack says, of course he had. Babington had come out to meet the Worcester in a double-banked cutter. And then we get the big bomb, Mike, dropped by this very stern, very serious admiral who says to Aubrey, then you are no doubt aware that I have it in contemplation to call you both, that's Aubrey and Babington, to a court-martial for disobedience of orders. <gasps> and Mike, it looks like Jack for a moment here could be in serious trouble. He's been called in by Thornton. He's been blindsided by this big accusation from Thornton that he, Aubrey, had disobeyed orders. And maybe we were asked to hark back a little bit to Jack's reflection a couple of chapters ago where he was reflecting that just as Admiral Mitchell had been flogged around the fleet, maybe Jack's end might be disciplinary disgrace and flogging. Yeah, it's it, you know we we had suspected that Hart might be up to something with Jack and Babington uh, when Jack was getting his orders, and and it turns out that it was Thornton's intention all along for the Dryad to have been captured there at Medina, forming a pretext for Thornton to dispatch his squadron to overthrow the current bay to clear out the French. But Hart had misled Aubrey, and and we don't know whether this is out of incompetence or cowardice, you know, not wanting to give these uh, unpalpable orders to Aubrey to sacrifice the dryad. But knowing Hart like we do, it was most likely just a clumsy trap, hoping to trip Jack up, or we recall, you know, Hart thinking to cure him for good and all. Clearly, what we thought might be the Ionian mission starting, this was not the Ionian mission here. No, 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 no. Far from it. So very quickly, we turn from real heart sinking, oh my gosh, Jack's in the trouble of his life, to the revelation that it was just, as you say, Mike, this clumsy trap set by heart. And it's revealed in a couple of sentences. Jack pretty soon is back on the on the moral high horse, so to speak, when this this mistake or duplicity on Hart's side is revealed to him and revealed to Thornton. And Mike, I really enjoyed this outburst. You know, Jack in previous times has exploded in front of admirals and senior officers and got into trouble for it. But now I think he gets a perfectly judged explosion fueled with genuinely righteous anger. 
And he says, when I referred to my written orders, I found nothing whatsoever, not the slightest hint that they were to be understood in a special sense, that I was to send a ship under my command into a trap and oblige her to be captured, perhaps with heavy loss. And I do not wonder at it, sir, said Jack, his colour rising at the idea of Babington hauling down his colours at last under overwhelming fire. I do not wonder that you did not give me a plain, direct order to send my friend in under such circumstances. On the other hand, he says, my written orders did insist upon the respect due to neutrality, as did your verbal instructions. And he goes on to say to Admiral Thornton, I respected that neutrality to the very limit of human endurance. Mm. I'm like, I'm, I'm just, I'm just cheering Jack on here. I'm banging the table, going, yeah, you stayed yeah. in control, but you really, you really stuck it to the man as well. Well done, Jack. Yeah, hear him, hear him. <laughs> and, 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 and I love it. Jack's got this, you know, this force of righteous indignation. And yeah. and O'Brien tells us that Hart's reply was disconnected, angry, unskillful, and somewhat embarrassing. And and then just to, you know, to kind of really cement the smiles on our faces, you know, we find Jack later writing home in this ongoing serial letter to Sophie saying, you know, about he and Babington said, we were as gay as a pair of schoolboys that have escaped a most prodigious flogging and expulsion, and we called pullings and mow it in to sup with us. So yay, Jack, yay, <laughs> Baffington, and boo his heart. Amen. And yay for, yay for a youthful perspective for Jack as well. He's been right. harping on at himself about, about aging and lack of capacity and lack of faculties. So having a giggle and a, and a, and a dinner and a few bottles with Pullings and Moat and Babington, it's great. Yeah, that's the young Jack. Love it. As we said, Jack is beginning to report this conversation in a letter back to Sophie. And we get this really nice episode, Mike, of, of Jack reflecting in the letter to Sophie and also reflecting to himself in terms that he can't or doesn't choose to write in a letter to Sophie. He goes on to describe how he's now more or less well in with Admiral Thornton and he has new orders now to go to Mahon to be reunited at long last with Stephen. He doesn't mention to Sophie that Stephen's going to be set down on the French coast in an intelligence mission, but he does mention to her that he's still feeling uneasy about the anticlimactic action, or you should say inaction, at Medina. Not because of the bad feeling from heart, but because he, Jack, is very aware of the doubts of the ship's crew, especially the former members of HMS Skate. And he's aware that there are fights brewing between the Skates and Jack's own followers, and not only the lower deck hands. O'Brien goes on to write, it also led Jack to notice, or to fancy he noticed, changes in the attitude of some of his officers, a lack of the perhaps somewhat exaggerated awe and respect that they thought due to the genuine salamander's reputation that had surrounded him for so many years and that had made his work so very much easier. So Mike, he's got this, yeah, he's he's aware, I mean, he's expressed this already in, in the book, I think. He's aware that maybe whatever's gone before was luck and circumstance. Right. And he can't count on the luck and he can't always rely on the circumstances. Yeah, and I, I love O'Brien's, the genuine salamander's reputation. I mean, again, it's one of those little Easter eggs that we could go right by and say, you know, I don't know exactly what that means, but we know what he's talking about. Like you said, Ian, that everybody thinks of lucky Jack Aubrey and, you know, is just in awe by him. 
But this, this salamander, if we sort of scroll down multiple Webster definitions, we finally get to this mythical animal having the power to endure fire without harm. So, you know, can kind of walk through fire. It goes back to Paracelsus, the great Swiss alchemist, you know, one of the forefathers of modern medicine here, who accords these beings with each of the four elements, the primal elements. Uh, You know, four appears to be the structural pattern of natural order, gnomes representing the earth, undines, the water, salamanders, fire, and sylphs representing air. Now, those are the four elements, and he also had man as number five, and in him, the presence of the fifth element intervenes, you know, usually assigned to ether. So now we know why Bruce Willis was the fifth element. Yeah. Now, I, I still don't think that makes uh, Die Hard a Christmas movie, but let's not get into that. <laughs> Tweet us now. Go on, why not? Let's right. join the controversy. Right. At, at whole lovers. <laughs> Die Hard Christmas movie, yay or nay? <laughs> Having reflected on this and helped us enter Jack's own headspace as he's thinking about this, O'Brien gets right to the heart of what's been eating at Jack, I think ever since the beginning of the book and maybe even before that. O'Brien writes, all of this Jack could have put in his letter and he might even have added his reflection about a man's losing his reputation and a woman's losing her beauty and each of them looking right and left for signs of the loss in much the same manner. But it would not have told Sophie much about her husband's real trouble, which was a dread that he might in fact have behaved cowardly. He says Jack had a profound belief in the lower deck's corporate opinion. He remembered his relief when he understood that the Frenchmen were not going to fight an ignoble relief. Or was ignominious the word? Mm. And O'Brien goes on and says, Sophie would certainly tell Jack that he had behaved correctly, but that, although agreeable, would be no real comfort to him since even she could not get inside his head or heart or vitals to inspect his intentions and his intentions as they had been at that moment. I think that's the real darkness here, Mike. It's not just that look is deserting him. He thinks his character, he thinks his motivation is deserting him. Right. And boy, we we know how this has loomed large. I mean, even going back to master and commander, Mm. you know, this honor, this going into action, this way that Jack has always, through all the books, you know, action has just set him up just the same way we've talked about, you know, Admiral Thornton could be cured if the French would just come out. But this was a case where that was not going to be the cure for Jack. He actually felt completely the other way. So what does he need? I think at this moment, Mike, Jack needs his friend. He needs some familiar surroundings and he needs perhaps the comfort of some female company. So what could possibly go wrong (laughs) as he heads for Mahon on Menorca? Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, we, you know, again, we're hastening back to Master and Commander, remembering the first book and his time there. And and sure enough, you know, O'Brien takes us back to the scene here. We've got Jack and his barge crew. They're approaching the inlet at Port Mahan, all very familiar territory from uh, Jack's days in command of the Sophie. And we have a little reminder of how Jack and others enjoyed their share of dalliances ashore back in the good old days when Mahan was in British hands. This was water, said O'Brien. This was water that he and his coxswain uh, 
at least four of his bargemen knew as well as Spithead or Hamaways, and they sailed up with a kind of offhand cunning, shaving past the lazaretto, catching the back eddy by Cuckold's Reach. And Mike, yeah, I love this. Cuckold's Reach is described as a spacious stretch in these warm latitudes, and then slipping through the hospital channel, censuring all the changes that had been made since their time. So here we are. Plenty of room for cuckolds still. In right. And Mike, I get the impression that O'Brien is really happy to be writing about Mahon too. It, it, it's been quite a sort of psychological, contemplative book so far. There hasn't been very much really vivid first-person writing, I, I don't think. And I noticed that as we get into this stretch. And it, O'Brien's really relishing describing the view of Mahon with a slight nostalgic air, I think, from the point of view of Jack. And he luxuriates in naming all of the landmarks that slide past as the Worcester makes her way in. He's reflecting that the character of the buildings hasn't actually changed much. He says the place still had much of the air of an English Georgian market town and seaport set down in an incongruous landscape of vines and olives. And Mike, he's, he's enjoying writing about colour and light and the sky. And I associate that as being a, a, a bit of a sign that we're meant to feel at home. I remember him writing in the same way about Dover, writing in the same way about Bombay and Halifax and a few other ports that I think we're expected to regard as a place of interest and a place of colour and life and reassurance. Yeah, it, it's amazing. I mean, you know, in O'Brien goes out of his way to talk about how in the past Jack had kind of tried to relive some of these nostalgic, uh, you know, walk back throughs of places he's been and they've never gone well. But this one seems to be going really, really well. And he's, he's making his way through town. It's a great day. Like you say, he's writing about the weather. He's writing about the light. I was sitting here going, oh, my gosh, it's, you know, this is kind of our New Year's show. It's going to be 2021 please, I would love to get to Mahan this coming year <laughs> or as soon as we possibly can. I mean, I'm dying to be here in Collier and, and, and you know, to, to be reminiscing with our listeners here about these places just as Aubrey and O'Brien are reminiscing here. I mean, he even heads up to the Crown where he used to stay all the time. And he's, you know, he's anticipating, you know, really a great meal, including one of his favorites, a dish called Solomon Grundy. And and this one, you know, like Suedi, and I have no, you know, no idea whatsoever about Solomon Grundy. Can you tell us anything about that? Well, it's one of these archaic recipes. I'm pretty sure that it also appears in uh, in a couple of other places, but I tracked it down first of all online. There is something that you can buy still these days called Solomon Gundy, which is a canned fish paste made of pickled and spiced herrings that's sold in Jamaica. But that's not what Jack's talking about. He's talking about an 18th century version of Salma Gundy or Salad Magundi, which was a salad made of meat and fish and pickles. So um, I found a reference to a recipe book published in 1734 by someone called Mary Kettleby. And it says, to make a cold hash or salad magundi, take a cold turkey, two cold chickens, or if you have neither, a piece of fine white veal will do. Cut the breasts of these fowls into fair dices and mince all the rest. To the quantity of two chickens you mould, take eight or ten large anchovies, wash and bone them, 
anchovies would have been a favorite of Patrick O'Brien because he lived in anchovy territory all his life. Mm. Um, wash and bone the anchovies, eight large pickled oysters, 10 or 12 fine green pickled cucumbers, shred the oysters, the anchovies, the cucumbers, and one whole lemon, small. Mix them with the shredded meat, lay it in the middle of the dish. Lay the dices of the white part round the dish with halved anchovies, whole pickled oysters, quartered cucumbers, sliced lemon, and whole pickled mushrooms or capers or any pickle you like. Cut also some fine lettuce and lay around the garnish. But put not oil and vinegar to the minced meat till it come to the table. Nice. As they say in France, bon appétit. Or as they say in England, good luck. <laughs> well, now, now does this sound uh, you know reminiscent of your current Boxing Day meal, Ian? Yeah, I was going to say that this is like cooked meats and pickles. That's my... One of my favorite meals of the year. That's December 26th, Boxing Day. Leftovers and pickles. It sounds delicious. I'm not so sure about the seafood part. I'm not sure about shredded oysters on Boxing Day, but most of the rest of it I'll take. Well, I'll, I'll pick up on the seafood. Send that over here. Right. Oh, great. <laughs> I believe there's also a recipe in the excellent Patrick O'Brien cookbook called Lobscouse and Spotted Dog, which I think has a slightly different ensemble of meats, but it's the same idea. Um, I think in the case of um, Lobscouse and Spotted Dog, it also calls for garnishing with nasturtium flowers, which is a very, I don't know, I, I would say a very hipster touch, but I'm not sure if that's fair to hipsters. <laughs> nice, nice. Oh gosh! Well, I can't even pronounce these, much less. Uh, you know, I, I don't know them at all. So I, I look forward that perhaps uh, when we uh, when we take the podcast to Mahan, we'll find somebody who can pick, you know fix us up one of these classic dishes here. We've got Bondin as coxswain, and you know, you know, he's leading the barge just as he did back in our days in Master Commander. They're passing by familiar landmarks. O'Brien's calling them out. We see the spot where Jack used to consort with Molly Hart, a great reminder of why Hart and, and Aubrey are crossing swords here again in this book. And, you know, Bondin, it, it's, you know, we've talked about Bondin maturing. And so we've got this midshipman that Jack is sending ashore to make all the arrangements with a harbor master to figure out where to pick up Stephen. And Bondin, you know, basically is going along to accompany the midshipman. But I love how O'Brien tells the whole story of how Bondin corrects him and, and, and makes everything right and actually gets the right message communicated. He's looking after this youngster, Willet. He's also making sure Jack gets everything he means. And uh, he's helping us to understand the, the local language for Sabbath, uh, Sabato and Sunday, <laughs> which the midshipman has entirely backwards. Not Sunday, but Saturday evening when the Sabbath starts. Yeah. And I think, Mike, the nostalgic feel continues as they're walking around and Jack's walking around the town of Mahon. It seems sleepy and deserted. We noticed that since the British left town, the Spanish Navy only keeps a couple of brigs there. There's not very much of a naval presence. So even though the buildings and some of the tone of the town still has this old British feel, it's much more sleepy and almost silent compared to how it was when it was a busy naval harbour. So in this hot, sunny day, Jack feels like he's more than ready for a cool rest in the shade. And having called in at Joselitos, he then gets to the crown. And we already hear that he's feeling more like his old self because the, the cold, for example, that's bugged him for about the last four chapters has long gone. And he hears the sound of a deep contralto woman's voice singing high upstairs and that makes him think of mercedes the maid that we met and more importantly that jack met 
way back in Master and Commander. Right, right. This is the woman who's, uh, I, I believe, whose mother used to supply Jack with all his secret intelligence about shipping in the area. Uh, you know, kind yeah. of set him up to be lucky Jack. So we've got the scene set here. Jack walks into the tap room at the Crown, and there's a parrot there who says, you bloody old fool. And and we close in on the details from Jack's point of view, completing this lovely and nostalgic description of the interior of the Crown. Brian writes, he was glad to see an enormous bull mastiff come in from the hall, making the first marks in the newly sprinkled sand. The Crown had always had fine English mastiffs, and this one, a young brindle bitch with a back broad enough to dine on must be a granddaughter of all those he had known very well. So brindled means tiger striped. Um, there was a brindled bitch, I believe, in Harry Potter is, uh, is Harry's oh. aunt. <laughs> I, I believe. I may have that wrong. I, I, but it was one of the great scenes uh, just before she gets blown up. But this whole set of this this enormous nostalgia, Jack walking into the bloody old fool parrot prediction sets up one of the most charming and funny reunions in the whole canon. Ian, tell us about what happens next. So, Mike, the text says, looking up, Jack saw Mercedes coming down. An unchanged Mercedes, still pigeon plump, but no vast spreading bulk, no moustache, no coarseness. Why, mercy, my dear, he cried, how happy I am to see you. And stepping to the foot of the stairs, he stood there with open arms. Mercedes paused a moment in her course and then crying, Capitan Maniac, flung herself into them. It was as well that he was a powerful man and well-braced for Mercedes, though slim-waisted, was a solid girl and she had the advantage of the height. He stood the shock, however, the padded, scented shock, squeezed the breath out of her body he lifted her up and gazed at her face with great complacency. Pleasure, freshness, gaiety and peach-like bloom he saw there, and he kissed her heartily. A delighted, frankly amorous kiss heartily returned. So, I, I, I don't know, Mike, this is all very ambiguous. I can't quite tell what's going on here. Yeah. So we get, you know, Jack doubting himself. But then his cold is gone, this cold, which seems to be this, you know, kind of lingering metaphor for his impaired condition. He's back as the kind of the youngster who's first gotten his command going through the town back at the crown. And, and I don't know. I think it's kind of clear where this is leading. You know, she takes him away to a private dining room. And then it's just the two of them. She has all these dishes set up. She's eating with him. They're having this fabulous meal. They've gotten to the end of many, many, many courses. And she's saying, of course, he has to take his old room back. And they've got it all recently refurbished. And he's saying, no, 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 he's captain of the ship now. He couldn't possibly sleep out of his ship. And and she's saying, well, you know, maybe just a few hours in your old room, you know, kind of tempting him to say something about, yes, but not sleeping. Uh, and, and we don't know whether to be pleased with the warmth and the charm of the writing, you know, kind of amused at Jack and Mercedes' blatant interest in a bit of midday canoodling, uh, afternoon delight, as we used to sing, or shocked that Jack is steering 
a bit close to the marital wind once again. You know, after all the lessons you think he would have learned since the ball in Halifax, after the sermon on lust, forsooth. Yeah. But it is Jack ashore. Ah, it is. So, Mike, let's just backtrack a minute. Mercedes greeted him not with the name of Jack, but with Captain Captain Maniac. What what's going on there? What do we think Maniac might mean? Well, you know, this is amazing. I I kind of I stumbled on this just a little bit, thinking this is just you know as as uh, Mercy would say, her kitchen English, her poor English. Yeah. But lo and behold, a little research. This is is a Catalan phrase. Not only is it a Catalan phrase, but it's a Catalan phrase from 1803 <laughs> usage wow. here. So, man, right on Patrick O'Brien. And, and it usually denotes someone or something which is docile, easily led. It was first applied to spoiled children and then later to dogs. But it also suggests something lacking in aggressiveness, which we're kind of, you know, is, is sort of a, you know, a double-edged sword here. We're going, you know, that's the way Jack has been feeling, but clearly the way he's acting right now, he's, uh, he's certainly moving out of and is starting to act aggressively here. I don't know. What, what did you take away from it, Ian? Well, it's funny. I, I think I breezed past it thinking it's either a mispronunciation of maniac or a mangling of man-jack, but I think man- maniac is an 1803 Catalan word is great. I think we'll take that. And maybe maybe all of them have a role to play because that's the way that, uh, that O'Brien used to write. Absolutely. So, so here they are. Food is almost cleared away. The bedroom is beckoning. Who better, Mike, who better to grouch in on the scene with great timing, with urgent news and ill-judged banter than Stephen Maturin? So... <laughs> O'Brien describes Stephen's arrival as the most unwelcome entrance of his life. And Mike, O'Brien's including Stephen entering rooms containing American spies and French discretion. (laughs) So that's a pretty high bar. Stephen's arrival, the most unwelcome entrance of his life. Mercedes jumps up, pretends to be serving Jack. Stephen goes straight to Jack, got no compunction at all says come brother drink up your coffee there's not a moment to lose we must run to the boat Stephen turns recognizes greets mercedes without missing a beat in catalan asking her to bring the bill so they can hurry away and jack tries to make all of his excuses to delay the departure says well maybe i can meet you in a few hours and Stephen bats all of these excuses away are they of the very first importance to the service and jack says well actually they're not well then let us hear no more of them i beg would I have rid the cruel long road from Ciudadela in the heat of the day? Would I drag you from your coffee and your company and drink none myself if there were no imperative haste? And here it comes. If it were not more important than amiable communications or even than spouse breach for all love. Come, child. The captain's hat and coat and sword, if you please. Duty calls him away. Spouse breach. Well, Mike, I think that if it's time for drinking up coffee and reflecting (laughs) on amiable communications, I'm not going to say reflecting on spouse breach, reflecting on amiable communications, then I think I could do with a few moments away to gather my thoughts. What about you? Well, I think I am going to call myself away from moral introspection and we'll be right back after this short cold shower. (laughs) 
if you're enjoying the podcast please come and join our supporters on patreon go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hold so welcome back we heard just before the break of Stephen barging in on Jack, perhaps about to commit another act of marital infidelity. And as they head out, they call the barge crew. And the barge crew, remember, led by Barrett Bonden, sees Jack's expression. And they say, watch out for squalls, because Jack is not happy. It's a silence of extreme disappointment and frustration. And the officers and the bargemen stay silent, giving each other forbidding glances. Um, Mike, we don't hear very much about the conversation in the boat, which must have been awkward. But we go straight back into Stephen's point of view, and he's he's thinking about what's coming next. Yeah, Stephen's oblivious to this whole thing because he, he's thinking about this hastily called meeting. We realize as Stephen's thinking about this that you know he's ridden at breakneck speed on this mule all morning through the hot sun because. There's we we knew in the beginning of this book that one of his missions was to be placed down on the French coast. It turns out that this really important meeting that this whole mission has been leading to has now been moved up. They've got many more French officers and their allies. They've worked hard to kind of coordinate getting all these people together in one place at one time. And in order to accommodate one officer, which is going to be extremely important to attend, they've moved this meeting up and Stephen realizes that he, you know, while everybody else can probably make it, it's going to be a real toss up as to whether he can get there in time, whether the Worcester can get him to the right place on the shore of France in time. This is something that Stephen's just plunged into with great seriousness. And it, it feels really awkward as they get back to the Worcester, Mike. The, there's this uncomfortable conversation. I, from my count, Mike, I think it's been a long time since these two were properly at odds with each other, since there was any genuine air of you know, d- disagreement. And in the cabin, Stephen asks Jack if he can get him to the mouth of the Aiguille by Tuesday evening. I think this location is fictitious, but it's on the shore of the of the Languedoc region of France. Jack whistles when he looks at the location and starts to list all of the nautical reasons why he clearly cannot guarantee that. And Stephen cuts him off. For God's love, Jack, just point the ship in as near as the right direction as ever you can and tell me about leeway afterwards. There is not a moment to be lost. And Jack goes on deck and off they go, tearing out of the harbour. I think Jack even offered to slip the cable if he thought a few minutes would save some time. And Stephen realises that he has, in fact, really vexed Jack. And there's this very awkward feeling between them. Meanwhile, the atmosphere on the ship is actually pretty high now, Mike. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, Jack and Stephen are at odds together. But now we're, you know, we're going tearing out of the harbour here. And all the old Sophies are telling their shipmates how Jack has never left the Mahan Harbour in a hurry without taking a prize or several prizes. And this word is flashing itself around the ship. You know, Jack's now gotten them out and on their way. He returns back to the cabin, reports to Stephen in a very official, formal, stern tone that he may well be able to get Stephen there in time if the breeze holds and he thinks it might. Now, O'Brien tells us that Stephen makes what he writes as all proper acknowledgments Uh, I guess trying to be a little bit more deferential here, but that Jack carries on in his captain's voice. 
I am not sure what you meant by saying spouse breach of the crown just now, but if it means what I think it means, allow me to tell you that I resent the imputation extremely. Stephen was about to deny it or try some fallacious attempt to explain it away. But the text says he found it was exceedingly difficult to lie successfully to so intimate a friend. In the event, he only had time to pass his tongue over his lips once or twice like an embarrassed guilty dog before Captain Aubrey stalked out of the cabin. And right, it's funny how quickly the tables turn, isn't it? Uh, Jack was clearly about to commit a major moral stumble and was actually rescued from it by Stephen. But with a couple of turns of phrase and an awkward non-response in the conversation actually it's Stephen who feels under moral pressure and is seen to be the one at a bit of a disadvantage so they're really kind of feeling their way around each other here a little bit and it's almost like we've got this kind of morality tennis match going on because it wasn't you know but a few chapters back that we had Jack trying to talk to Bennett and and trying to convince Stephen to tell Bennett Mm. so amid all of this Stephen's thinking about Jack's harshness and actually doesn't want to dwell on it. He goes back to thinking about the details of the rendezvous and he heads back to a little bit, I think, of Stephen's comfortable place, which is thinking about wildlife because he's thinking this particular location in the coast of Languedoc, he's hoping that bitterns may be back there. So stick a pin in bitterns. We might pick up a bittern action later on. Nice. Ah, well, Stephen kind of heads off to the sick bay then. He's, he's been gone for quite some time. He wants to catch up with his assistants. And what he finds them doing is they're all abuzz, excited about how much prize money they're going to make once the Worcester catches up with this, whatever prize they're now chasing. In their heads, they're already spending their prize money. So they tell Stephen about Barca. They tell Stephen all about Medina. And they also tell him that they have never seen a ship's company so deflated or divided. And, you know, while they don't have many people in the sick bay there, they attribute pretty much all of their injuries, except for the camel bite from Barca, to fights between crew members. And, you know, it's this brewing thing that we heard earlier the skates, the old Sophies. But they're sure that once this prize is captured, it'll wipe out all the crew's sense of failure. Yeah. So Stephen gets to fall asleep, exhausted from the mule ride, thinking about the mission, thinking about this harsh response from Jack, wondering to himself why he had mentioned spouse breach, thinking about the rhinoceros, I think, as well, and blaming himself for the unwarranted, ill-bred and unpardonable freedom that it had been to say it. And There's a little bit of a hark back here, I think, to some of the regret that Stephen had about being a little bit of a bit bit flip and a bit showing off in his first dialogue with Professor Graham, that he can sometimes come out with rather a glib comment and it gets him into trouble later. So jealousy and fatigue might have been a factor, of course. And in any case, spouse breach wasn't quite the right term because Mercedes is married, so it would have been double spouse breach. It's so fascinating because like you say Stephen's dog tired now and he's falling asleep here and then he murmurs this double spouse breach like three times sort of like an incantation and falls off to sleep very odd 
Very interesting. Also reminds me of him kind of falling off to sleep in the temple prison and thinking about Diana. Mm -hmm. So in the morning, it's a different scene, thank goodness here. Jack sends Killig around to wake Stephen up. And and when Stephen wakes up, he kind of notices Killick's long nose sticking in the door. And somehow he knows that Killick's been there a number of times already, you know, kind of continuing to check to see whether Stephen's awake yet. When he sees that Stephen's rousing, you know, he sends him the captain's compliments, uh, says the captain's inviting him to breakfast and would like him on deck to see a particular sight here. So Stephen pulls himself together. He heads up on deck and there's Jack surrounded by these amazed officers and crew members. They're all excited and expectant. And they're all looking like at Stephen, like, you know, he should be falling over in amazement. And Jack indeed asks Stephen if he's ever seen anything like this. Stephen, which, you know, again, a reminder of of our good land lover, Stephen, a bit like myself here. Uh, He looks around and he has no idea what he's talking about, but he realizes this is a moment here, an important moment, especially with the the gulf between him and, and Jack. And he says, oh, yes. He has never seen such a remarkable sight in his life, <laughs> Again, having no idea what that scene is. Jack helps him out a lot. Jack starts pointing out all the sails that the Worcester is flying. It turns out that Jack had been up pretty much all night working to get absolutely the fastest trim on the Worcester, trying different things. And these officers and friends of Stevens take turn pointing out all the wonderful sails that are flying and what everybody refers to as the whole shooting match. And and Stephen is wondering, you know, how uh, he, he smells the bacon, he smells the food going, and he's thinking, you know, how long do I have to stand here? And luckily, a jib comes loose, and Stephen takes advantage of that opportunity to head down for breakfast. Ah, oh, the providential jib. Well done. <laughs> so Jack's feeling better, and he's saved breakfast, as you said, Mike, for when Stephen woke up. And we've we've had this before, haven't we, that there's been a disagreement and between them, and I think this case particularly is all about Jack. Jack's processed his his personal reconciliation he's done a bit of self examination and he's managed to come straight back with yeah okay let's make this better and we can absolutely believe it now i think we had a hard time when they resolved the difference around the duel back in post captain but we can absolutely believe it of them now that as people with a mature friendship jack can mull over it think yeah i was being a bit of a clown hanging out with mercedes stephen wasn't a million miles from the truth and he's got something dangerous that he needs to do now. So Jack is right on it. And this is put to the test straight away. A mate of the watch interrupts them to say that four merchantmen have been sighted. And Jack dismisses them. I mean, dismisses potential prizes. Dismisses potential prizes in the Western Mediterranean, in his prize Happy Valley. And he says to Stephen, I'm going to disappoint the men cruelly again. There's not enough time to take a prize and deliver Stephen on time. And Moat comes in, bless him, who's certain that Jack mustn't have gotten the report correctly because when else would lucky Jack choose not to head off in pursuit of a prize? And Jack, and Moat says, they'll miss the merchantman if they don't alter course. And Jack says, continue on the same course. Yeah, this is, you know, it, it, it's kind of astounding. We're thinking about where Jack's been with the men and, you know, how he certainly doesn't want to look shy 
and how everybody, the fever on the ship is whipped to an all-time high about taking these prizes. And here they are, four merchant ones, one big fat one, they all tell him. And and Jack realizes this, and, and he's talking to Stephen about Medina, about how a chase and a prize would have absolutely overcome all of that, pulled the crew back together wonderfully. And then Jack, you pointed out, Ian, that, that Jack seems to have had a night of self-reflection in addition to getting these sales ready. Because he tells Stephen that, you know, he's been just so ill-tempered and he's asking him for a little physic to curb this ill temper. And he almost tells Stephen about what O'Brien calls the suspicion that dwelled in his mind. Mm. You know, we take that to mean his suspicion that that the crew's right as he started to write to Sophie that that he's really lost his nerve. But he remembers that Stephen is about to head into this very deadly mission, risking his life. And instead of telling him about his own concerns, he invites Stephen to smoke, something that we're given to believe that, you know, Jack doesn't particularly appreciate in his cabin there. But he's very gracious. And Stephen is all too thrilled and goes on about, you know, extols the virtues of tobacco and how the the smoke's going to set him up for his mission here. And Jack, you know, O'Brien tells us, is very concerned about Stephen's mission, very much wishes he wasn't going. And he expresses that to Stephen. And Stephen says, you know, he really doesn't have an option. He must go. And, and you know, O'Brien you know, has this, this great line here. It says, Jack nodded to be sure. Stephen's landing in some remote creek had as little free choice about it as Jack's carrying his ship into action. Yet, there was something so horribly cold-blooded about the creek, cold-blooded, dark, and solitary. He hated the idea, yet he drove the Worcester towards the place where the idea should become reality with all the skill he had acquired in a lifetime at sea. Oh, there you go. Jack, on the horns of the the paradox of his service, he's got to proceed with all due dispatch to something that he really hates the idea of. <sighs> now, the Worcesters don't really understand. The ship's company, they're impressed with the seamanship and the sense of urgency, but they're wondering what's going on. You know, we, we sail past the merchantmen. Now, Jack has driven them really hard. He's driven them so hard, in fact, that they arrived with hours to spare and they had to stand off and on as time seemed to stand still. And and Mike, there's this whole sense in the remaining pages of this chapter of time seeming to stand still. We get this very surreal, slow pace. Jack repeatedly tells Stephen all the things he's prepared for him to take along. He says he's renewed the flints on his pistols. Stephen thanks him each time and suggests that they play together. And they, they do something else to, what was the phrase that they used earlier on about Bach? To unravel the knitted sleeve of care or something. They they decide to improvise, or as Stephen suggests that they improvise, and Jack says, okay. They improvise using a phrase from a Haydn symphony, and there were 106 of them, so we can't even begin to guess which one, um, until Pullings tells them that it's time. You know, I'm thinking about this uh scene in trains, planes, and airplanes where these two guys sort of wake up with their arms around each other and are, you know, ah, how about those bears? (laughs) 
See that Bears game last week? Yeah, hell of a game, hell of a game. Bears got a great team this year. They're gonna go all the way. Oh, yeah. And I'm almost envisioning this, that here is Steven and Jack both of them in these places. We'll, we'll learn more about Stephen's mind in just a minute, but you know, here they are. And so they're kind of wrapping their arms around each other with this phrase that they pass back and forth. I just love this scene. You know, and, and I'm also a little bit worried about where this is going here. As we get, uh, you know, we're coming close to shore. The ship is completely darkened. You know, Stephen's basically handed from one person to another because he can't see. He's he's taken into a boat, and as he's going down into the boat, the last thing he feels is Jack, you know, grabbing his hand and shaking his hand. Uh, and Moet leads the party. Uh, he asks Stephen if he's brought along his boat cloak, and Stephen explains, "No, no, he doesn't need that. It's it's you know, it's a warm evening." But Moet points out that the wind is likely to change and that the changing wind will likely bring rain. Bonden interrupts him to say that Stephen is actually sitting over his boat cloak, that Bonden had stowed it there for him. So, you know, we get the sense again, you know, harken back in several books, how all the men love Stephen. They're looking after him. Uh, you know, they they fight for Jack on board. They're looking out after Stephen. You know, I love this camaraderie in the community here. And they land Stephen on shore and they kind of go out of their way to make sure he has everything. They confirm their meeting plans. And then they just as quickly disappear back into the darkness as Stephen sits there watching the sea. And we talked earlier about the four elements and O'Brien writes here, you know, as Stephen's watching, the only sound was the wind over the dunes and the lapping water down there. It was, in a way, the world at the very beginning, the elements alone and starlight. Oh, wow. Now, Mike, I love this passage that's coming up next, not only because we go from Jack reflecting on his changing character to Stephen, but just because it's so individual, it's so first person, it's such rich writing. O'Brien writes, he was extremely unwilling to move. The sense of personal invulnerability that helped at the beginning of the war had left him long ago. He had been a prisoner the last time he was in France, and although he had come away unharmed, at least two of the French intelligence services had identified him beyond any possibility of a doubt. If he were taken now, he could expect no mercy at all. He could not hope to come away untortured or alive. In earlier days, he had faced much the same kind of fate, but then there had always been a certain chance of deceiving the other side or of escape. And in those days, he was not married. His aims were single-hearted. And in any case, he cared less about his life. So, Mike, we've got Stephen held back and and made anxious by the fact that he cares more for his life now, oh, which is pretty deep stuff. And the rest of the description of Stephen going ashore is all about the immediate physical description. I love it. When the time comes, it says Stephen sets off. He goes towards the meeting place near the surf so that his footsteps will be erased. He has to stop and argue with his unwillingness. He has to stop and debate with himself several times to persuade himself to go forward. And Mike, again, it seems like Stephen, like Jack, is seeing that he can't be as aggressive or as single-hearted as he once was because 
he's got more attached. He's got more attached to life. He's got more attached to his uh, to his family and his wife. Right, right. And it's it's a little bit like the passage where Jack is playing the Bach Chacon. It's a bit like the interior of the Crown. All these moments where we get right up into the character's head. It's fascinating stuff. And although lots of the rest of the novel, I think, is about communities and families arguing and forming and reforming, you know, it's about the collective. I think O'Brien's best writing in this book is when he's writing about the individual as he's doing here. And it even harks all the way back to the the foreboding of Stephen walking around the sand dunes of Kent before the duel that he was going to have with Jack in post-captain. Right. Very, very individual, but still very poetic. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's just phenomenal. I mean, it's it's part of what I think all of us come back to these novels again, time and time again for... Well, Stephen spots a signal light ahead. It's it's a signal he's been looking for, and, and he heads towards it, but he has to pass around a lagoon. He's got to follow this old fisherman's path across a bunch of reed beds to a dike, go across the dike past three pools to get to this shooting box where everyone is supposedly being gathered, and, and he's supposed to meet his contact here on the dike to uh, you know kind of walk along with him here. And so, you know, O'Brien, as you say, takes us along with Stephen in Stephen's head and describing the nature as Stephen takes this journey. He passes all these wading birds. Uh, He listens to these flamingos close by. He watches ducks fly overhead. And then about a mile away, he hears, and and O'Brien writes, a bittern began his foghorn song. Boom, boom, boom as regular as a minute gun. I'm taken back to this, you know, thinking about when, uh, like it says here, you know, when we've got the convoys together and they're in deep fog and you've got this gun going off every minute to kind of say, you know, here's safety, here's where we are, everybody stay together. And this bittern is kind of providing that for Stephen, a little bit of perhaps some assurance here, walking through the darkness into this danger. And I, I, I was not familiar with bitterns. I had not heard of them before. And it turns out that this is a really fascinating, spectacular, very rare, secretive bird, a, a swamp and marsh dweller, uh, various varieties found mm-hmm. around the world. And, and maybe we can post uh, some uh, something out on social media that gives you a yeah. little bit of a feel for what these things look like, how they puff their esophagus up with air to make this this sound. Unfortunately, they are so rare, and it's really hard to get close enough with them to to you know capture the audio there. And there, there's some pretty funny examples out there of people who actually get the opportunity to see it, but are so excited they talk over it and you can barely hear it. But, um, and amazing stories. So it's not only the bittern as well. Maturin is surrounded by all these sounds of nature. He hears a rabbit taken by a stoat as he's going through the undergrowth along these paths and through the reeds. He has to be careful of mud and pools. The path is hard to distinguish from all the other paths that crisscross it, even though he thinks he knows where he's going, even though he thinks he knows the lie of the land. It's dark and he's navigating by sound and by touch. He says, these paths were certainly made by wild boars. And at one point he heard a band of them moving about snorting. But boars did not interest him very much. 
what almost frivolously occupied the top of his mind, riding above his eagerness for the meeting and his success, and above his deep and sometimes almost paralyzing sense of fear, was the bittern. He was going directly towards it. The sound was astonishingly loud by now. And Mike, as you say, this is a very rare situation for anybody. It's especially a rare and exciting situation for a lover of birds and nature. That The sound was astonishingly loud. He thought the bird might be at the edge of the reeds fringing the next pool, whose far end was formed by the dike itself. If only he could move quietly enough, and if only luck were with him, he might see it standing in the moonlight. I'm just so taken with O'Brien's use of this bittern and how it's, you know, it, it, for me, uh, if I'm in the middle of a dark swamp and I'm hearing a bunch of wild boars moving around, that, that would certainly interest me, <laughs> but it doesn't. You know, the wild yeah. boars don't worry him. Even the, now the, the danger of the mission seems to have gone to one side. Even a bit of his eagerness about the meeting and success, like he says, he's just focused on this bittern, which is a fascinating thing. I'm not sure exactly what O'Brien is telling us here about what matters or how we move ahead in the midst of these things. But the bittern does not move. Luck seems to hold. Even when Stephen trips knee-deep into mud, um, and and this contact that he's meeting calls out to to verify that it's Stephen. The bird doesn't move. Now it's just taking this full breath, and you'll see in in the in the video clips that they do really suck this incredible amount of air in and blow themselves way out. But O'Brien writes that having just taken a full breath, it falls silent as Stephen and his contact kind of call out their their passphrases, the passwords to identify themselves to each other. Uh, Stephen notices that the contact who was supposed to be up on the dike, so is easily seen by everybody that was getting there, uh, was not on it and, and was down, was moving in the bushes. And the contact tells him that that he had heard somebody else moving in the bushes. And so he wanted to be a less obvious target than up there on the, the dike with this light. He reports to Stephen who all has arrived, who's yet to show up. And, and Stephen gives us his assessment that this guy, this this agent in France here, is clearly a townsman. He's clearly spooked by the countryside. And then we get these almost humorous uh, descriptions of all these times he starts and jumps and cries out once he says, oh my God, what was that? As these two large white shapes rise in the air in front of them. And he's you know, petrified. And Stephen just replies, egrets. <laughs> great deadpan and great focus. That's what we're seeing, isn't it, from Stephen? We're seeing his ability to just think about the thing that he wants to think about. Right, right. Uh, you know, one of the joys of living in Florida is egrets all the time, especially the cattle egrets out by the horses here. But this, cool. this guy, you know, Stephen, as you say, he's so focused, but this guy is, is like all over the place. And he's going on and on about what a bad idea was to bring all these different people together, some of whom they didn't know very well, and to bring them out here in the midst of nowhere. There's such a high possibility for an indiscretion or an accident. And, and he's spooked again. And Stephen tells him this thing he's looking at is like a gatepost with an owl on top and says, please, would you put your pistols away? Well, it turns out that his his apprehension's not completely misplaced. We don't quite know what's going on or who's out there, but as they walk, they hear shots 
in the marsh below them, just a few hundred yards away, the man that's been with Stephen Leclerc, he turns and runs toward the shooting box, the others and the horses calling out that they've been betrayed. And Stephen's left alone again. He slips off the dike into the reeds and he listens as the shooting calms down. He listens as both sides, whoever they were, appear to be running away, more sporadic shooting and then silence. Far away, there might be the sound of horses galloping and the wind changes and the rain begins to fall which brings Stephen back to nature and back to his original focus the bittern starts up again and with the bittern booming away Stephen pulls up his cloak's hood and when he's certain that his contact's not coming back he climbs back up on the dike and walks into the wind trying to get back to the dunes before a search begins and Mike we there's a change in the mood here because he's not afraid or alone anymore he's angry i think he's angry at the botched setup of this meeting he's angry at being left out here vulnerable to being betrayed or to being picked up he's worried that the boat might not be able to get to him in the rough sea because the wind's increasing so there's surf he sees a dark lantern like his but open moving toward him on the dike he doesn't want to get down into the water because he doesn't know how deep it is so he finds some stunted tamarisk bushes to duck under he pulls his hood over his face to hide the whiteness of his skin. So this man is continuing towards Stephen and, and and he stops occasionally, but but he doesn't look around. So it doesn't appear that he's like some gendarme, you know, trying to make an arrest in the midst of all this mm-hmm. stuff. The guy just stops and looks down and then he starts to move again. And Stephen thinks, you know, I'm going to stay in here and this guy's going to walk past me and, and then I'll get out of here. But as soon as this guy gets next to Stephen, all of a sudden he sits down in the same bushes three yards away and he stays there until the rain stops just as suddenly as it had started. And the guy stands up again and and O'Brien tells us that he would have missed Stephen entirely, but just before he walked off, he sat down again suddenly and he opens his lantern fully to inspect his naked foot. And O'Brien writes, it was covered with mud, but as he wiped the dirt off with his handkerchief, a red flow covered the white skin. He tried to staunch it with his neckcloth, and in the reflected light, Stephen saw Professor Graham's face, closed and hard with pain, but unmistakable. (gasps) Mike! After all of the personality and the character and the behavior lab stuff, we've got some spy plot going on here. What is Professor Graham doing out in the middle of the marshes, wounded? We didn't know that he was an invitee to Stephen's meeting, or at least not by Stephen or known of by Stephen. So what's going on there? Meanwhile, Jack, what's going on with him? His his self-doubts, his thoughts about... Uh, female company and life, you know, being back in Mahon. What about this mission? What what about the French? Because they're still presumably bottled up in Toulon. What about Hamlet? There's an oratorio being planned. Mike, so many threads left to pick up here. What do you say (laughs) to a bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart.
<laughs> oh, God. Sprout breach. 